Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Uh, so we'll have a period of meditation and then we'll give some teachings and discussion. Finding a way to sit this upright, relaxed. Finding a posture that feels sustainable. <coughs> Allowing our eyes to be closed and establishing mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness in the body, with the body. And it's useful to set an intention or an aspiration for our practice. And I invite you to use compassion as your intention. To be compassionate towards all of the unpleasant thoughts that may arise, sensations. To incline your heart and your mind towards friendliness and compassion, towards your experience, all of the parts of our experience that may be challenging or unpleasant or painful. Allowing the attention to rest on the breath, mindfulness of the breath. To fully arrive here, letting go of the past, the busyness of your day, of your life. Landing here with the, each breath, letting go of what's next our imagined future plans, hopes, worries. Bringing our full attention to our bodies sitting, breathing,
And each time the attention is drawn away from the breath back into thinking. Gently return, remembering compassion, gentleness and mercy, friendliness towards your own monkey mind, rather than yanking the attention back or being critical, gently returning.
Use the body, first foundation, breathing as an anchor, gathering our attention. Then we expand mindfulness with a quality of investigation to the whole body. Scanning the attention down from the crown of the skull through the head and face. Scanning for sensation. Investigating what parts of the body are experiencing pleasant sensations, what parts are experiencing unpleasant sensations, how much of the body's experience is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Bringing the attention down through the neck into the shoulders and trunk of the body, down into the arms. Almost like you're pouring mindfulness into your body. Out into the fingertips. Through the internal organs and bones and muscles. Feeling the contact with the chair or cushion down into the legs. Investigating sensation and the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So often our attention is drawn mostly to what hurts. If there's anything painful, the attention feels threatened, aversive. See what it's like to breathe into your pain, if there's any present, with compassion, softening around it, accepting it. An attitude of friendliness and mercy towards your own discomfort, softening the belly, releasing the jaw. Learning to be with. And you can stay in the body awareness, or you can open to emotions and thoughts, the sense doors of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. And it's full application. Mindfulness is inclusive, not Avoiding, not excluding, but including all of the 
experiences of this mind and body. When you get involved in a thought, acknowledge what it is. Is it a plan or a memory? A fantasy? A hope or a fear? And what's it feel like? What's the tone of that thought your mind is spinning? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral?
it's the intention of compassion for the unpleasant thoughts and emotions, the unpleasant sensations in the body. Even if we can't quite do it yet, don't fully care about our own pain, still have a lot of resistance and aversion. It's the intention. The compassion practice, sometimes we say, may I learn to care. May I become more tolerant, accepting of my pain and the pain of others. When we are resisting, we're often tightening physically. The belly gets tight or the jaw. The shoulders start to rise. We're putting your body in the relaxed posture, softening your belly, releasing your shoulders, your jaw. Opening your chest. All can be an act of compassion.
As you may have uh, guessed, I want to talk about compassion tonight. Sometimes Buddhism gets, um, sometimes it's said, and I've been guilty of saying it myself, writing about it in some books, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that, that Buddhism is both wisdom and compassion. And uh, sometimes there's the image, I think some of the Tibetans use the image of like the, the liberated, the, there's two wings of liberation. And there's the wing of wisdom, understanding the impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena. And then there's the wing of compassion, of uh, learning to care uh, about our pain, other people's pain, the pain of the world, the suffering that is real and exists, both internal and external. And it's, uh, it's a nice way. I like that image of this sort of these two wings. There's, I'm working on my wisdom wing and working on my compassion wing and uh, kind of mindfulness as wisdom and the heart practices, loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness and appreciation as uh, kind of that whole wing of heartfulness. The Buddha didn't really talk about it that way. Um, and if you are a little bit familiar with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the core of the Buddha's teachings. Um, not a lot of compassion in there. Not a lot of mention of, no mention of loving kindness or compassion or a little bit, you know, sort of in the intentions, he says, you know, we have to develop these intentions, these uh, that are free from hatred. And so you can kind of say like, oh, well, freedom from hatred is loving, is compassionate. Uh, but he doesn't use the term karuna or, or metta, compassion or, or loving kindness in the original formulation of this is how you get awake. This is how you get free. Comes later. It comes, it comes later. Um, because my, my sense is that, and, and the meditation instructions originally given, mindfulness four foundations of mindfulness this was like the buddha says you want to get enlightened practice ethics you want to get free you want to liberation be ethical in your speech in your actions and your livelihood have intentions that are free from hatred free from ill will free from greed self-centered intentions and practice mindfulness Mindfulness and concentration, but mostly mindfulness. <laughs> he kind of says, yes, concentration is a good quality, but be careful with the concentration. Too easy to use concentration to avoid. So it's a good quality when mixed with mindfulness. But if you just concentrate, you'll kind of concentrate away from the causes of suffering, where mindfulness is turned towards it. And if we turn towards it with mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, 
friendly or compassionate awareness, then we see what we're doing in the meditation. We see like, oh, some percentage of my experience is perceived second foundation of mindfulness. Some percentage of my thoughts and sensations and are pleasant. Some percentage, some amount of your experience, depending on what's happening in that moment, are unpleasant. And a lot of what's happening in our minds and in our bodies is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Compassion is the outcome of mindful investigation of our relationship towards unpleasantness, towards pain. And it's in this way, I make the argument, I've been making it for a while, it makes sense to me, I don't know if it makes sense to you, that actually wisdom and compassion is a false dichotomy. It's not like there's wisdom over here and compassion. Two wings, bullshit. (laughs) One wing, (laughs) no wings. (laughs) Wisdom, just wisdom. Because it becomes so clear that the only wise relationship to pain is compassion. It's a wise response. We're naturally born into these bodies that have an unwise response to pain. As you notice when you're meditating, you sit here and your knee hurts and you're like, fucking hate that. And effortless, right? Hatred, effortless. Ill will, aversion, resentment, you know, all of those things that the Buddha says, hey, you know, tune up your intentions over here because the natural human intention is ill will, aversion to unpleasantness. Clearly not personal, not your fault, not just, you know, your conditioned response, uh, cellular, biological, survival instinct that says hate pain, avoid it, despise it, resent it, suppress it, medicate it, ignore it, do whatever you can to not be uncomfortable. Notice that in your life? And that Compassion is this incredibly rare and radical and skill to truly and, 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 you know, against the stream. The stream is aversion, normal. Aversion, normal. Compassion, weird. Like, you know, I talked earlier about like a bunch of weirdos. You're a bunch of weirdos trying to be compassionate towards your own pain, that's abnormal. That's not what's going on here in this human. We're not born with that. I don't know how many of you are parents or have been around babies. You ever made a compassionate baby in your life? Babies are not compassionate. They fucking hate being uncomfortable. But, you know, it's not like we're born with this, like, I think I'll just tolerate this 
craving for boob. <laughs> no, I hate being, I'm hungry and I'm pissed and I'm gonna scream about it and let you know. I'm uncomfortable, I'm gonna let you know, I'm gonna, right? Like it's, we're just born into aversion, craving. It's not your fault, it's not moral, it's not any of that bullshit that religion has assigned to it. It's just biology. And compassion is not a necessary survival instinct. You don't get it, right? It's not handed out in your sort of <laughs> process of growing up. It's not like, well, it's uh, when I was a kid, I hated pain. And then at some point, I became tolerant and compassionate and merciful towards pain. It's like, it's just, it's not something that happens all by itself. True compassion is a really radical skill that comes out of the wisdom that we get from turning towards our pain and seeing, okay, it's all impermanent. Whatever's happening in my mind, when my heart and my body, and when it hurts and I push it away, I meet it with aversion, I make it worse. You know this equation, most of you do. There's a difference between pain and suffering. And the Buddha's whole thing is he said, we can end suffering. We can end suffering partially by changing our relationship to pain rather than meeting it with aversion, accepting, oh, this painful, unpleasant thought is arising and passing through my mind. This painful, unpleasant emotion is present. These, this pain in my body is present. And rather than meeting it with resistance, our reactivity and our resistance is what is creating, turning it into suffering. Now, not only does it hurt, now I hate it and I'm suffering about it. Rather than just letting it hurt and learning to care about it and allow it to arise and pass and be like, well, that was really fucking unpleasant. <laughs> but I didn't suffer about how unpleasant it was because I've trained my mind to be with pain, to turn towards it and to tend to it rather than try to control it and manipulate it and get rid of it. Mindfulness teaches us to turn towards, to see clearly, and to respond wisely. The only wise response to pain 100% of the time is compassion. Can you think of a time where it's not the right thing to do? An experience where it's not the wisest response to pain? We're not very good at it. It's not like we do it all of the time, but it's always the right thing to, the, white, the, the right way to respond. The wisest, and this is the Buddha's awakening and it's his teaching and it's what we're doing. How do I become more compassionate towards all of the pain? And there's so much. And you know, when I say pain, when I say suffering, sometimes it's like, well, those are sort of intense but also just unpleasantness. It's not, it doesn't have to be the big, uh, unbearable experiences. It's also just like, how many unpleasant thoughts came into your mind today? What if you had an unpleasant thought counter? 
you know, like we've got the fucking Fitbits. Like pretty soon we're gonna have, how many steps did I take? How many aversions did I have today? How many cravings came into my mind? How much resentment, how much past shit went into my mind say, hey, remember those motherfuckers? Remember that painful thing that happened to you 20 years ago? And the mind just, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, yeah, that was fucking painful. I am mad at the world. Unpleasantness is just part of our reality. My teacher, one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaral, in one of his awesome little books, he, he, he did these four little tiny books on um, the Brahma Viharas, on loving kindness and compassion and appreciation and equanimity. This one's called Don't Push. Just use the weight of your own body. And he goes, uh, it starts with him, this letter that was written uh, and this wise advice that was this um, part of, person that was part of the Sangha who had died, who was a um, bodywork, a massage bodywork teacher. And um, after he died, one of his students, who was also a student of Ajahn Amro and this, this bodyworker's name was, it's not important, but. Uh, Kondana, and he was one of the kind of um, uh, lay teachers in the Abhayagiri community that Am Amaro was the abbot of at the time. And, and I gave this, uh, she who's writing this letter about Kondana to Ajahn Amaro um, says, you know, that he gave me this amazing advice that I've brought with me and it was, um, don't push. He had said, uh, don't push, just use the weight of your own body. Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but also don't turn away. Just be with the person. That's all you have to do. And so Amaro took those four or five suggestions and, and, and uh, wrote this book about compassion. This part is called, don't try to help, but don't turn away. And just reflecting on that for a moment, like how often are you trying to help, trying to fix, trying to change and thinking that it's compassion. I'm gonna help you end your suffering. And even that sort of like reactive thing that so many of us do of like, don't cry. Don't, you know, don't feel your feelings. You're making me really uncomfortable being uncomfortable. Do you need a tissue? Do you need a hug? Do you need, is there something that I can do to make you stop feeling the way you're feeling? And I know it's not always that sometimes it's empathy and it's just like, I just want to be here with you and I'm offering you a tissue and it's totally compassionate. But if we look at our intentions, sometimes it's that trying to help someone not feel what they're feeling rather than be with it. Don't, but so not trying to fix, but also don't turn away. So he says, compassion in action means working with the painful conditions in ourselves and others and seeing how they mingle. The, the painful conditions that we're experiencing and in others, and how do they mingle? Like when you're with someone who's suffering, what's it like for you? 
How much do you take it on? How much do you, how uncomfortable is it? I know for me, it's it be uncomfortable. It's hard to tolerate other people's pain. Makes, you know, kind of, you want to fix it. You want to help. You want to feel powerless. See how they mingle. Often a period in our life is not just one single shade of pleasure or one single shade of pain. In many, if not most instances, we experience mixed feelings and sometimes a difficult condition, something that we had never, would never have chosen, ends up bringing immense, immense riches with it. Can you know that one? Where, like when you look back on your life and some of the biggest insights and biggest transformations, we're like, that was the fucking worst. That was the worst pain I'd ever been in but I got sober and my life changed, or I got out of that relationship and my life changed or whatever it is that often when we're in the midst of something really painful, you can't see how beneficial that's going to be. As he's saying, the immense riches that come from it. Even when we think of, even when we think of things as perfect, we don't realize that part of their perfection is their impermanence. I don't know what's the, in like the sunset, you know, like, do you like sunsets? Not everybody likes sunsets, but if you like sunsets, it's like, it's so amazing because it's impermanent and you get to catch it as it, arises and passes and the colors change. And, but if it was just always golden, it wouldn't be cool anymore. If the sky was always purple and red and you wouldn't even fucking notice it, but because it is impermanent, you're like, wow, this is part of the perfection of this is its impermanence. We have to see the glass as already broken. Ajahn Chah would hold up a glass and, and say, if you can see that this glass is already broken, then when it breaks, you won't suffer. Insight, again, mindfulness leads to the insight into impermanence. Everything changes. Everything's broken. My father took this teaching into the kind of hospice and death and dying. He said, everyone's already dead. Not only is the glass already broken, but because we are impermanent, if we can actually appreciate the impermanent time that we have with each other and see each other as already broken, as bodies already impermanent, wouldn't you relate differently to each other? I told this story recently at one of my Mondays. I was having a meal with Ajahn Amaro at some point years ago, probably over 20 years ago. And after the meal, and I was young and really kind of like he was my, he is my teacher. And especially back then, I was like, man, like it's precious to be around this. He's a fucking rock star, Dharma. This guy's a monk. I'm just a lowly punk. <laughs> and, um, and just like so much love and appreciation and gratitude and, and attachment. Like, this is my this guy's saving my life. The Dharma is saving my life. And at one, and we were, we're finishing a meal and, and saying goodbye. And I said to him, 
um, well, I hope to see you soon, or, you know, I'm coming to the retreat or I'll, you know, I'll see you later, like with all of this clinging. <laughs> and he caught me and he said, don't say that. Say goodbye forever. And I could, and it just like sunk of like, ooh, but it's this teaching of already broken, impermanent, and this uh, pulling the carpet out from that comforting attachment to I'll see you again soon because I'm attached to you, which is normal. And, you know, it's just the way we speak and everything. But he was using it as an opportunity as this exact thing. If you're real attached to me, if we don't, you know, if I die, you're going to suffer a lot. So actually, you don't have to suffer a lot when I die. You can see me as already dead. You can see this impermanent, this relationship as impermanent and start, you know, practice the Dharma, let go now, rather than waiting until the grief is overwhelming because you had that expectation. I didn't get to say goodbye. He said, no, let's have closure. Goodbye forever. hard, right? Couldn't you do that? You could start trying to implement that people will really think you're weird. <laughs> Next time somebody says, see you later, be like, well, <laughs> maybe or maybe goodbye forever. If you can see that this glass is broken, if you can understand that everything's impermanent, when it breaks, when it ends, you won't suffer. Compassion, karuna is the Buddhist word, in Buddhist psychology is not a state of suffering. This is important. This is, this is so important. If you're having an experience of compassion that you think is compassionate, but you're suffering, does that happen to you a lot where you're like, somebody else is in a lot of pain and you think you're being compassionate, but you're really suffering. Almero says, is not a state of suffering. The Buddha points out that if you are suffering on account of the suffering of others, that is not true compassion. Mindfuck, right? Because we've, we've been thinking we've been compassionate this whole time, suffering with everyone else, about everyone else's suffering, not true compassion. It is a distorted compassion, a false compassion, a compassion that is not really complete or purified. It is not whole. The English word compassion literally means suffering with. And that's why, right? We have this English word from the Greek or Latin or whatever it's from that says suffering with. And it's like, you're supposed to, suffer, you know, I'm suffering. You're, compassion, you're supposed to suffer with me, right? Fucking suffer with me, goddammit. The Buddha says no. Suffering with. Uh, and then he breaks it down. Uh, passio, passiones is a Latin word meaning suffering as the passion of the Christ relates to the suffering and death of Christ. And the prefix calm means with. But the Buddhist principle of compassion is talking about something else. I hope this is useful. I know when I 
realized this, I was like, oh, I've been doing it all wrong. I thought I was supposed to suffer with you. And if you don't suffer with people, they'll accuse you of being something. <laughs> Dismissive. Heartless. The Buddhist principle of compassion is talking about something else. It's fully attentive and open to the pain of others, but does not suffer on account of that pain. This is what we're developing. This is what we're, this is the goal. I know we're not there yet. I'm not there yet. We're not there yet. But we're trying to direct our heart, our mind, our skilled response towards feeling it. attentive and open, but does not suffer on account of that pain. I think most Westerners would agree that culturally this is hard for us to comprehend, let alone achieve. Usually we either turn away and remain indifferent to the suffering of others, or we feel upset or angry on their behalf and desperately try to help. We have an interesting cultural tendency to show that we care by getting angry or upset. But when we're faced with the suffering of others or with our own suffering, our own feelings of grief, there is a place that we can find in our heart, which is fully attentive and appreciative of that pain, but not swept up into a reaction against it or carried along by the current of it. That part of us which knows the pain fully, but does not suffer on account of it. One significant aspect of compassion is expressed in the figure of Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, who comes to us from the Northern Buddhist tradition. Kuan Yin is the Chinese name. The Sanskrit is Avalokiteshwara, for a spiritual entity who is the one who listens to the sounds of the world. To me, that is an extremely meaningful name for a being who is the embodiment of compassion, because it doesn't mean that they necessarily out there doing anything. The primary role of compassion, compassion in, in its primordial attribute is not getting out there and doing, its primary attribute is listening. Sometimes the most compassionate thing we can do for each other, for ourselves, is to just listen. Listen to our pain, listen to other people's pain without trying to fix it. The Tibetan name for the same great being is Chenrezig. In some of the classic iconography, the figure of Avalokiteshwara has a thousand hands, and each hand has an eye in it. This kind of imagery represents the capacity for doing that arises from having listened to the name, have, have, having listened, but the name has the same meaning. The bodhisattva is still the one who is listening to the sounds of the world. And the eyes, I'm, you know, I got one. I got two of them. And the eyes in that imagery um, are so that you can, the, the bodhisattvas can see. You can hear the suffering. You can see the suffering behind you, right? So you have all of these arms and hands and all of these extra eyeballs rather than just our two small human eyeballs that only see what's in front of us. Mostly, 
looking inward and being self-centered of these bodhisattvas that say, I want to see, I want to hear all of the suffering of all of the beings in the world. The quality of empathetic engagement is actualized through the practice of listening. We learn to listen, and in particularly, we learn to listen to our own thoughts and feelings, part of what we're doing in mindfulness. No more distractions, no more avoidance. Listen to your mind. Listen to your heart. Listen to your breath. Listen to your body. As we turn our attention, non-judgmental, investigative awareness, we're listening. We're slowing down. We're not turning the TV off, putting the books down, and stopping the scrolling on social media and listening to your own experience, your own thoughts and feelings. We often associate compassion with strong emotions. We associate it with being in the presence of the suffering of other beings when facing terrible tragedy, but there are also smaller, more local difficulties and suffering in our lives. The primary quality of compassion, the root of compassion, I would suggest, is learning how to listen, to attend to what is here, to what is present. And from that attending, a capacity to do the appropriate thing arises. Just what I was trying to say, why mindfulness leads to compassion, because mindfulness is turning towards and facing and listening and seeing our pain, as well as, you know, pleasure and neutrality. But when it's unpleasant, we're turning towards it, we're learning to listen. And then we learn to, uh, we see the aversive, habitual reactive tendencies, and we say, oh, I need to listen and care, be friendly towards it. So from the root of listening, the thousand eyes are watching what's going on, and the thousand hands can offer help. Guan Yin has lots of hands to lend. That multiplicity of hands represents the thousands of ways, the 10,000 fingers that can help, but the help stems from the root of listening. Along with listening to the needs of those around us, we learn to listen to our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own body, and we discern the different voices that we hear, what some people helpfully refer to as the inner committee the voice of reason, the voice of kindness, the voice of the three-year-old in a tantrum. They're all in there. You do have, you have this, uh, you have clarity about your inner committee, the board of directors, that there's a three-year-old in there throwing a tantrum sometimes, and there's a voice of kindness, and there's a voice of generosity. the rationalist, the sensitive one, the excited child, the fretful child, the depressed and the unhappy cynic, the ever cheerful, the voices of the unbiased kindness and unbiased wisdom. Listening to all of those parts. Did many of you see that child's film, um, Inside Out? It was a child's film, but it was sort of based on neuropsychology and who was it? The Paul Ekman's work and about emotions and about how what happens, you know, the whole moral of this cartoon movie uh, was what happens when you don't listen to your sadness and how it like starts to break down everything. And that sadness has an important seat at the table. 
and that grief needs to be listened to and our pain needs to be turned towards and, and vulnerability and intimacy with the unpleasant experiences in our life is uh, unavoidable and it's a necessary skill to turn towards. But we're born into these bodies that encourage us to avoid. We're born into these minds that say, don't listen, turn the music up louder, take something. Feeling sad? Here's some antidepressants. Don't feel sad. Now I'm not dissing antidepressants. Some people, <laughs> some people need antidepressants for sure. But also we live in this culture that's very quick to medicate our emotions rather than encouraging us to turn towards and feel them. Compassion's only half of the story, but it's a very important half of the story. Maybe it's a third. I, I would say uh, three skills, compassion, huge skill we have to develop, listening. Then also non-attachment, the wisdom of non-attached appreciation towards all of the pleasure, which includes renunciation and non-attached appreciation. And then also ultimately, perhaps for balancing both the non-attachment and the compassion, non-identification with the mind, not self, not personal. Waking up to like this human condition, it's not your fault. So those are some of my thoughts about compassion. I'll open it up for conversation. If you have a question online, you can raise your hand in the participants. I think under your participants, there's a little hand that'll raise, or if you have a question or comment, clarification, please, Carlos. Um, I have a question about um, loving kindness, metta, and compassion. I'm trying to integrate those both. I'm more familiar with metta. So I like what you're saying about compassion. It's really is are they kind of like two heads of the same coin or or is meta really the action that you take after you have you went through awareness because they seem like they're connected and they need they need one another so i'm just wondering what if you could help kind of parse out the difference between the two and how they can integrate those two concepts sure could you hear the question at home or should i repeat it question is the um connection between loving kindness and compassion and um, what's the difference and how do they uh, so there's four brahma viharas divine heart qualities and they're all um, you said two sides of the same coin it's a four-headed coin if that's possible uh, one of the ways uh, the images that i heard that i like is that it's like your heart right these are the heart practices and your heart has four chambers right? And, and all four chambers have to be working. Is that true? Hearts have four chambers? Yes. Hearts have four chambers. And all four chambers, right? So they're like the blood, you know, the arteries pump it in and then it goes from this chamber and then down there and then up here, whatever, goes out the veins, whatever happens. But there's four of them. And all four of them need to be working in order for your heart to be healthy, right? Not, not missing one, not blocked, not obstructed. So loving kindness is a heart chamber. Compassion is a heart chamber, appreciation is a heart chamber, and equanimity is a heart chamber. These are the four, four sides of a 
heart of a coin, four chambers. Um, loving metta is always appropriate. It's an attitude, it's an outlook, it's a way of being friendliness. Metta literally means friendliness. We, we translate it as loving kindness, but it's more accurate to translate it as unconditional friendliness. It's always appropriate to be friendly or kind, but also within kindness, I like like situational ethics. Situa Sometimes the kindest thing to do and even the most friendly thing to do is to say no to people. And sometimes we think of kindness as yes. It's, you know, it's like, it's unkind to say no. It's unkind to have healthy boundaries. Oh my God, like you said no to me, you're so mean. Sometimes the kindest thing to do is to really uh, have firm boundaries and um, to say no and to, right? So, but loving kindness in its appropriate application, depending on the situation, again, which doesn't always mean being nice, Sometimes it means being firm. Sometimes it means being, um, you know, vehement about <laughs> the situation. There can be an aggressiveness even that's appropriate. And the kindest thing to do is to aggressively say, fuck off. You ever that, hear that story of loving kindness? Sharon Salzberg tells this story. I've told it too many times, but it just comes to mind about how she was practicing loving kindness. You've probably heard it. Um, with Deepama, one of her teachers in Calcutta, and she got attacked and sexually assaulted in the rickshaw. And some man reached in there and grabbed her tits. And then she showed up to her Dharma teacher going like, I was just assaulted. And, and her teacher said, were you practicing love and kindness? And she said, yes. And her, and, and her teacher said, and did you have your umbrella? And she said, yes. I had my umbrella, we're in Calcutta, it's rain, you know, it's raining all the time. I had my umbrella. She said, if that ever happens again, with all of the loving kindness in your heart, take your umbrella and smash him in the face. <laughs> so I think, you know, we need a loving kind and an attitude of loving kindness that's like, hey, you know, sometimes it's appropriate to have boundaries and self-defense and not that it's this sort of soft kindness that's just like, oh yeah, abuse me. Meta for self, cherishing in a healthy way. Yeah. So you're with me, right? Loving kindness, always appropriate when situationally, you know, but compassion is not always appropriate or necessary. Compassion has one aim, pain only. You don't need to be compassionate all of the time. Well, in this mind and body and world where there's suffering all of the time, it's kind of always appropriate. <laughs> but really, compassion is only the wise response to that which is painful. When we're listening, as, as Amaro is saying, you know, it's when uh, you're sitting with a client or a friend or your child and they're in pain. Compassion. When you're in pain, your mind is doing something unpleasant emotionally. Compassion. But when joy is present, no compassion necessary. When you're, you know, with a friend and they're celebrating and, you know, then it's appreciative joy. When you're sitting with your children and they're laughing and having a great time or whatever is happening, no compassion necessary because they're not suffering. Only when we're suffering or they're suffering or. Now, of course, in this world, you can 
don't have to look too far to see suffering. So often we need to have easy access to this listening, to this willingness to be with the pain, not denying it, not avoiding it, with it, listening. Is that helpful? You know, and then there's appreciation as towards pleasure, towards joy, towards happiness. And then there's that equanimity that understands. And really this ability to just listen and not suffer with is equanimity is this fourth chamber. It's like the 36th chamber of Wu-Tang, Shaolin. Um, because with equanimity is where we develop this immense compassion, this immense appreciation, this loving kindness for all living beings. And then the reminder, the, the, the balancing, the understanding don't what i love the way he he said you know it's if you are suffering on account of the suffering of others that is not true compassion it is distorted compassion it is false compassion it is a compassion that is not really complete it is not whole i heard a tibetan teacher years ago said it's idiot compassion there's true compassion and then there's idiot compassion, not very compassionate, calling me an idiot in front of everyone. <laughs> Equanimity is what makes it whole. Understanding that everyone has their own karma. Everyone is responsible for their own happiness. No matter how much I love you, I can't change you. No matter how much I appreciate you, I can't end your suffering. You have to do that for yourself so I can listen. I can support, I can guide, I can encourage, I can educate, you know, all of the things that we can do. But equanimity knows our, our boundaries, our limits. Compassion is not fixing, it's caring, it's listening. Equanimity understands that. I don't have to suffer with you, but I care about your suffering. Juan, please. No, it's just by calling equanimity, calling it equanimity. Probably what I kept on thinking was when you mentioned Amaro said about not fixing. What struck me was well, this is Kukuna and this Tana, this wisdom. And wisdom is based on right view. Right view is, uh, yes, life, going back to basics, uh, life is suffering, preconditioning. Life is suffering. There's going to be suffering. You're going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. That's life. You know, there's, there's, there's going to be suffering. It's impermanent. Joy, that can be a bummer, but when it's suffering, yeah, it's going to end eventually. I mean, you might die, but you know, either way, it will end. Then, of course, there's, uh, it's not personal. Causes and conditions, except in a lot of things. Because so much of the torture is, it's their fault or my fault. I mean, that's just, all the blame that compassion which always kind of was a problem for me because i'm used to coming from the background i do because i'm used to depictions of Kuan Yin, of Kuan Yin, where you know everyone makes a big deal with it, but she's she's not like this she's got one foot ready to go and like you said the thousand hands when do you ever go when do you ever if you're wise you're also stable and equanimous yeah yeah when is does the green light come on that 
I guess that's the question for me. Like, when, when, when is the question coming? When is this? When is it not? That's your karma, or that's you know. When when does the green light come to take action? Yes. It is the question that none of us can answer for anybody but ourselves and through trial and error. You get the question? That because it's not just listening, also action, right? Also, sometimes it's you need to step in and protect somebody from an attack. Sometimes you need to uh, protect them from themselves. Yes. So I don't know the end, you know, there's no, I, there's no way to say like, well, this much of the time you should act and this much of the time you should just listen. I love the serenity prayer. You know, the serenity prayer and in, in, it's a kind of a recovery prayer where it says, may I know the difference? May I have the, the uh, serenity to accept the things I can't change? Listening, compassion. May I have the courage? to act that foot on the ground to, to change the things that I can because we can change some shit and we should be working for a positive change and we are working to be of service and to but also may I have the wisdom that discernment to know is this the acceptance part or is this the courage part because it's you know we don't want to start sounding too complacent about Yes. Or are you ready to take that? Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? All right, we can leave it there. It's about time anyways, I think. Close, close enough. Um, and I want tacos, so. <laughs> Happy to be here on a Wednesday night. I'm glad that you are all supporting this Wednesday night Sangha. Jason will be back next week. And um, the Against the Stream, the annual Fall Against the Stream retreat is happening that I'll be teaching October I don't know. I want to see, say 10th through 17th. I'm not sure if those are the correct dates, but I think it's some 10th through 17th, I think. Um, at Joshua Tree, there is still room to register, but it's getting pretty full. If you're willing to camp, you can wait and register later. But if you want to sleep in a bed, if you're going to come to the retreat and you want to sleep in a bed, you should register soon in order to get a, a room because um, they gave us limited rooms this year. But camping in the desert is pretty nice that time of year. It's not too bad if you're planning to come. It's cheaper to camp. There is some scholarship money available, um, probably, for people who want to come to retreat but can't afford it. Uh, you can apply for that on the website. Um, we'll leave it there for tonight. Class is done by donation. I see that Michael has posted in the uh, chat there a way to a link to make donations online if you're here you can if you have cash you can put it in the bowl if you don't have cash to donate you can um, do it through venmo uh, or paypal if you have those platforms there's the uh, on the desk there there's the the, the handles for the paypal and the venmo 
Um, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream. A lot of people, um, one of the ways that we pay the rent uh, on this building and the expenses, the employees and support myself and uh, is through making monthly donations. So please consider becoming a, a monthly supporter. Also that's on online and do that through our website. Many goodness that comes through our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us develop immense compassion, like the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshwara Guanyin. May you have eyes in the back of your head. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.